0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 620 of them now, and so if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the Past Interviews menu. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel and explore it on YouTube, but on batgap.com we have You know, better kind of organization system with categorical listings and chronological and most popular and transcribed ones and a bunch of different things that you can't easily do on YouTube. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. And there's also a donations page that explains a few alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Rhonda Byrne. Most of you have probably heard of Rhonda, or at least have, you'll remember who she is in a second. She's the creator of The Secret, which is a documentary film that swept the world in 2016, changing millions of lives and igniting a global movement. She then wrote a follow-up book, also entitled The Secret, which became a worldwide bestseller and was translated into more than 50 languages. Rhonda has since released another five best-selling books covering such topics as The Power of Love, Gratitude, The Law of Attraction, and The Hero's Journey to Success. Her latest and most important book to date, and those are her words, the most important, is called The Greatest Secret, and she describes it as a quantum leap that takes the reader beyond the material realm and helps them discover who they truly are. In addition to the things I mentioned, Rhonda also served as a producer on the inspirational 2020 family movie *The Secret: Dare to Dream*, based on her book. The film starred Katie Holmes, Josh Lucas, and Jerry O'Connell. So welcome, Rhonda. It's funny—I first heard of *The Secret* quite a few years ago. It must not have been long after it came out. I was taking tabla lessons from a guy, and because uh, I used to be a drummer, and I wanted to learn to play tablas a little bit. And he was all excited about it. So he lent me the thing and I watched it and everything. And, and I, and, you know, we talked about it a little bit afterwards. And I said, well, you know, I mean, obviously there's something to this, but you have to also be realistic. You know, I mean, I'm not going to become the world's greatest table player at the age of 60 any more than I'm going to become competition to LeBron James or somebody. You know, that we have certain, certain limitations, but I, I imagine you would say that people limit themselves. A lot more than they need to maybe
1: you're right (laughs) i was listening to your words and i thought well then you wouldn't be the world's best ball player you actually have to believe that you can be and and i mean law of attraction says absolutely anything is possible and everything is possible so if we can open our minds to that then we reduce all of the limitations that we impose on ourselves and that society imposes. So,
0: so LeBron James I mean, I, does I, have to worry about me. A uh, five foot ten, seventy two yeah, years old. I, think so. yes. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> but I think anyway that you're drawn to, you, you know, you're attracted to what you're meant to do, and so if you have an enormous dream, it's not a coincidence that you have that dream. And I certainly know for my life that once I discovered this, then what ensued anybody would have said that's totally impossible for that to happen. I mean, somebody from Australia to create a documentary, I had hardly any money to do it and to have it affect tens and tens of millions of people around the world and change their lives and that would be an impossible dream, but it happened. Yeah,
0: yeah. You've done several other interviews, lot of them probably, in which people have gone in great depth about your whole biographical background, and Ian McNay of Conscious TV did a great one. I listened to it twice, and I don't want to spend half of our time together going over the same stuff that you've said a million times and that people can listen to elsewhere, but uh, we'll cover some of that in, in just a second. In fact, let's do that now, and, and then we'll get into some more points about, you know, the main things we're going to talk about. So you just touched upon it. You were this person in Australia, and but let's do the synopsis of the story of Rhonda. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh gosh So born into a very modest family background I guess you could say that our family was quite poor But I wasn't aware of that as a child But it was, I was incredibly lucky to have had a very safe and secure childhood Just went to public school, nothing incredible Although I would have to say that I was always curious as a child and asking questions and so did all of that and then I think my first job was like being a stenographer and I didn't even have any big dreams then. Being a stenographer was what I thought I could be and not anything more than that. But as time went on, I went into radio, I became a producer on radio and the person that I was producing on radio said, hey, come to television It's the same as radio just with pictures And so I worked on a Tonight Show which was incredibly nerve-wracking and just like Jay Leno or a show like that but live. And so I worked on that and that gave me all of my, I think, television background. And so I ended up by leaving the network that I was working for and started my own production company, jumped off the cliff, took (laughs) took a risk And then made a lot of primetime kind of television shows and I would come up with the idea, the concept for those shows. And basically I I look back and I say, well, I was asleep all all of my life until September 2004. And uh, 2004 was a really tough year because my father died suddenly and I was also making television movies about unsolved murders. And so everything that could go wrong went wrong that year. It was just on a grief frequency, it's tough.
0: Let me and just so, interject here. Do you feel like making television shows about unsolved murders had a deleterious effect because you were putting your attention on such dark stuff all the time?
1: Absolutely. That year, and it, you know, it was perfect. I just look at it and I'm like, it was so, it was so perfectly lined up. I just think everything, when I've reflected back, Everything in my life that happened, happened at exactly the right time. I went through a really difficult relationship breakup just prior to 2004. So there was that as well. And uh, so all of that came together and my mother was grief stricken. So that year was really, really challenging in making these shows on murders. And the other thing is there were psychics involved in that format of that show And I think just filming and working with them had me open my mind because I really do think like we we all like to think we're very open minded, but mostly we're not open minded. And that experience, even though it was terribly, terribly difficult that year, it really opened my mind. I I began to. Sense things intuitively where I hadn't before. But yes, in September, then I just hit the skids. You know, one thing went wrong after another after (laughs) another. um,
0: I once heard an Indian sage say, When the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail. And (laughs) I've talked to a lot of people who've really gone through a rough time just prior to some kind of big breakthrough, as if they're just getting rid of a whole load of karma before something clears.
1: Yeah, it's extraordinary, really, and the particular night that I kind of collapsed in a heap was my accountant called me and said, you've gone over budget and you're going to lose everything in one month, and my mother called me immediately after I hung up the phone and she said she couldn't go on because she was missing my father so much. Like, it is so perfectly timed, Rick. It was incredible. Like, I've played that over, over, over. That whole night, it was just incredible, My mother was a long way away from me and so I couldn't get to her but I talked to her, said I would be there first thing in the morning and hung up from her and then just collapsed because these two things I just could not solve. And um, my adult daughter walked in and said, what's wrong? And I didn't really want to upset her. I just said some things have gone wrong. She disappeared and came back with this photocopied bulldog clip on these papers all crumpled up. And she said, here you are, read this, it'll help. And I read it. It was like henny penny, the sky's falling. (laughs) And I sat there and I read it and I was weeping and it took 90 minutes to read. What was it? It was The Science of Getting Rich from Wallace Wattles, 1910, I think it was. And I read it in 90 minutes and I knew much more than was in that book after I read it. I knew we didn't die. I knew that we had way more power than we thought we had. It was incredible. It was my first sort of awakening and my first step to freedom. And I was just like, I can tell the world doesn't know this. I actually researched it for like three or four months without telling anybody what I had found and sort of went back through history and then said, we're going to make a documentary. I said to my accountant, I'm going to make something that is going to help millions and millions and millions of people. All you need to do is keep me afloat <laughs> and I'll make it. <laughs> and he did.
0: That's a good <laughs> so, captain, <cotton>, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I put everything on the line for that, um, to make the documentary. I heard
0: about that. You maxed um, out your credit cards, you mortgaged your house to the hilt. And you really... Um, I
1: did. I got an overdraft on my company yeah.
0: Kind of a jack-in-the-beanstalk situation, remember? <laughs> <laughs> remember, he sold the family cow for a handful of beans, but <laughs> <laughs> the beans turned out to be magic. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, the whole thing really took off practically overnight. I was wondering, yeah, you, I was, was hearing amazing. you say that you made the film and you put it up on the internet and it really took off, but how did you monetize that? It
1: was like three ninety nine of you oh, or I something I like see, that. Yeah. It wasn't meant to. I had this vision that it would go around the world in 24 hours and because of my television background, I had pitched it to all of these networks worldwide and they were all desperate for it. And then when we reached the point of completion, they all just backed away. And I kind of knew enough then to know that there was another path that I wasn't seeing and it was going to be a better path And I remember seeing this commercial on the internet. The internet was so, it was really early days. And I saw a commercial on the internet. I was like, wow, we can put our movie out on the internet. And I told my CEO at the time, and he said, no, no way. We can't do that. You can't do that. And he said, maybe at at some other time, I said, yes, this is it. I know this is it. It's going to go around the world in 24 hours. And so he had a technical background, can you believe it, per chance, no, and he worked with the company that put that ad out, which was two streets away from my company in Melbourne, Australia, and we worked together with them, and he created the pause and the fast forward and the rewind, and and so we're the first movie to go out on the internet.
0: That's great. Most people probably are familiar with The Secret, but just for the sake of those who aren't, give us the nutshell synopsis of what it's about
1: the secret explains to you that you create your life through the thoughts that you think and so your mind is uh whatever we focus on is what we will create in our life so it's really talking about the power of the mind that affects everything in our life so for example i mean i certainly did this before the secret I'm broke, and I would say that all the time. And if you say you're broke all the time, you would indeed, you will be broke. You have to think about and you have to focus on what you want, not what you're lacking. So, um, and so really that's it in a nutshell. But then the secret shows you all the ways to apply it to relationships and health and money and your life and your job and all of those things. It's what? I lived my life doing that and being very positive and grateful gratitude is a huge part of the secret and to just to be grateful and you think about all of the things like kindness and positive words and I would wake up in the morning and I would intend my day the day that I was going to have and then I would also set out that I'm going to make other people's lives better today because I touch their lives. And so what it does, what certainly what it did for me, is helps get you off focusing on negativity and things that you don't want and limitation and to focus on what you do want and to break the limits of your mind.
0: Ben. I saw a cartoon once in which there was a dog and there was a genie that had come out of a lamp. Yeah. And the genie is saying to the dog, now you only have one more wish. Are you sure you want another tummy rub? <laughs> and, uh, and the reason I mentioned that is it seems to me that if you can manifest anything you want, the first thing you should wish for would be wisdom so that you can want the right things.
1: Good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Because, I mean, there was a guy in your book, for instance, who wanted to date three women a week. And it's like, all right, I can think of many things more useful.
1: Me too. Yeah, more edifying,
0: more uplifting, more evolutionary. Maybe that's where he was at, and, and we do progress from stage to stage through what we desire.
1: And he did too, because he did that for a while, and then he wanted to marry somebody. He wanted to find the one. Yeah. So okay. it was even like a stepping stone for him. He wanted to find the one, and he couldn't find the one, so he needed to change what he was doing. And what he was focusing
0: on, say. So. You know, it's interesting. I just want to mention before asking you this question: in the Vedas, they have three what they call kandas, and there's like different aspects of the whole Vedic wisdom. And there's the karma kanda, which pertains to performing actions. There's the upasana kanda, which concerns itself with worship of the divine, and then there's the jnana kanda, which pertains to self knowledge. So it seems like, in a way, the secret was the karma kanda. You know. Pertaining to action, getting things accomplished, fulfilling your desires. And then you jump to the Jnana Kanda, the portion pertaining to self knowledge with the greatest secret. I mean, that's what the greatest secret is all about. Yes. How'd you make that transition?
1: It was how many years? It was about 14 years. I was just the sincerest seeker you could find. I dedicated myself as 24 7 searching, searching, searching because. After the secret, I knew there was much more of the truth that I did not know, and I certainly knew we didn't die. I just inherently knew that. And so I wanted to know the truth, and I went through lots of different traditions, and I was made an honorary member of an order, and I did a whole lot of degrees there, and I was just searching. And, do you know, I didn't think in the searching I thought I would always be searching and then I'd just find all these nuggets along the way and I love the nuggets. And then it was in 2016 and, and I remember hearing some teachers and could very well have been on Backup because I most definitely watched many, many interviews that you had done and I would hear them say that once you discover this, the search will be over. Once you know who you are, the search will be over. I could not imagine the search being over. <laughs> and yet in two sixteen, I did discover who I was. So I just think it was all, all of those years of searching and to just stop. I don't know why it took that long. You realise that you had to go through all the things that you went through to get to where you got to. And there's no explanation for that, but it was just your destined journey, and that was my destined journey. And I I just feel incredibly blessed that I had the biggest awakening of my life.
0: I once said to my mother, I I said, "Mom, don't ever feel bad about the way you raised me." And I had a pretty difficult childhood through really through no fault of hers. But um, I said because I'm really happy with the way my life is turning out now. So whatever you did, whatever has happened. It's been good. You know, don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, it's so true. All of the things that we would think these bad things that we wish or what we call bad that we wish hadn't happened, I am so grateful for every single thing that has happened in my life that led me to to realising who we really are and having that freedom. You would go through anything, anything to get to that point. Absolutely
0: anything. So, as a matter of fact, the intensity of your search could well have been a result of the difficulties that you had experienced. They say in some spiritual circles that the angels in heaven aren't interested in enlightenment because their life is too good; it's too easy. You know, they're happy there, so they don't think about there being something greater possibly. Makes
1: sense to me because I, I just think the. When life is going along really smoothly, you're not really searching or looking for answers. It's when life delivers you big shocks, you know, big shocks that you begin to ask questions, and one of those shocks, of course, is somebody that we love dying suddenly. But if events have us ask questions, who am I and what's going on and what's this all about, then they're just the gifts. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. On the point of big shocks, a uh, old Indian adage comes to mind. It's for the wise, only an indication is necessary. So, in other words, oh. if one has wisdom, a, a subtle hint could be sufficient. But if we're kind of a, a blockhead, then a smack upside the head might be necessary too. I think
1: well, I, I, I had to smack something. <laughs> <head for sure. laughs> <laughs> I, de- I definitely did, <laughs> but I'm really grateful for that. <laughs> I really am. And then listening to also to other people's journeys and their experience of awakening, all of those things make such a difference. I think I always get something out of every single interview that I have watched. Otherwise, I wouldn't have watched it. You know, I'm, I'm put there to watch it for a reason, there's something in there in that interview that's going to open my consciousness more. Yeah,
0: I always get a lot out of doing them and out of preparing for them. I usually spend many hours each week preparing for each one and it's just this enriching process, you know, it's just wonderful.
1: Best job ever. Yeah,
0: really, not even... Sounds funny to call it a job, even.
1: <laughs> not at all. But I feel, I feel the same way because my work has allowed me to search 24-7.
0: Yeah.
1: That was what I did. I just, I just could not have been more blessed to be able to do that.
0: And when you say your search came to an end, it sounded like it was kind of abrupt, and I've actually heard you tell the story about it. Why don't you tell the story about it?
1: <laughs> okay. So I had a circumstance that took place on the 1st of January. I mean, it's irrelevant, the circumstance, on the 1st of January in 2016. But what happened from that circumstance is I felt enormous disappointment and I was so shocked that I could feel something like that so strongly when I always felt so good, because I felt so good in using the secret principles. And I couldn't get over it and I decided to... I wanted to get rid of that feeling. I didn't want to feel that feeling anymore. So I grabbed my iPad and I put uh, Conscious TV on and they were interviewing somebody who was not a teacher, just an everyday person who had woken up and that was David Bingham. And I listened to David Bingham and he talked about how he woke up and that he listened to a particular podcast. And so I traced David Bingham's footsteps. And, you know, it's really interesting because I woke up, I kind of had the second awakening over several days. David's interview began it and then the podcast really hit me and then I reached out to David and I spoke to David and that was all over a few days and that was it. I was just, I was, oh, my gosh. I was so, so overwhelmed with joy and then the search did completely stop and it was a couple of months later that I met somebody who would become my teacher and I was very fortunate. She was really quite tough on me. I wanted her to be really tough on me. And when I say tough, tough in showing me the mind, and the tricks of the mind, and it was really fantastic because she really helped me see the mind and all of its tricks. And so really since 2016, I have been doing the welcoming practice, which is in The Greatest Secret, which is basically releasing all beliefs or negative emotions, just releasing all of those, and with everyone, you get happier, 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 happier. And so it's glorious, and... It's very rare for me to feel any kind of negative emotion anymore. I still can, but I notice it right away, you know, and then just welcome it and it just dissolves away. I remember Krishnamurti used to talk about that, about anger kind of flowering and then collapsing. And it didn't make any sense to me at that time, but now I I get it. So that's really how it all happened.
0: The way you describe it, it's been about, what now, almost six years since that episode with david bingham and don't let me put words in your mouth but you probably feel like you've grown a lot in these last six years and you continue to right yes absolutely never stops Right. so the thing about the search comes to an end doesn't mean that the journey comes to an end somehow there's just a just a a milestone that the, the energy changes from this kind of desperate seeking to a, a more of an abiding contentment. And then on the foundation of that, one continues to learn and explore and it's, it, the adventure continues.
1: Yes. And I think rather than I was looking on the outside and, and I had the joy of many, many teachers looking on the outside, that over the last six years, it's been internal. And so yeah. looking inward, and it's all been inward. So there's nothing now to know because I'm undoing all of that, peeling all of that away, and just being, really. That's the thing, just being aware of awareness. And so that's my life. I don't need to read a book anymore. just need to be who I am.
0: And if you wanted to read a book, you could still be who you were reading a book.
1: If you're drawn to read a book, or if you're drawn to do something that you re- absolutely meant to do, that yeah. I know that there are no coincidences, and we are drawn to exactly what we need in the moment, in in every moment. But I do have Lester Levinson's book by my bedside table, and I do listen when I go to sleep at night. I always listen to somebody, but it's not because I'm searching for anything but because I just can't get enough of
0: it. I can't get enough of it. It's so good. I'm that way too. I'm kind of a spiritual junkie or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. A question came in. This might be a good chance to ask it. Uh, This is from Elizabeth Myla Now, I think that's her name, from Colorado. Who or what is the I that creates my own reality? Is it a personal I, for instance, an individual human body or mind? Or is this I that creates my own reality something universal or transpersonal?
1: The I is our true nature. The I is who you really
0: are. I heard you talking in The Greatest Secret about this thing where we create what we perceive. And you, you actually played this game with yourself where you would leave the room and turn around really fast to see if you could watch the room coming into manifestation back if into- you turned around fast <laughs> enough. Actually, just last night, I asked Swami Sarvapriyananda about this. I take uh, classes from him. And he said, Well, in Vedanta, it's understood that there is sort of a, a universal reality to things which is not dependent upon individual perception in the sense that we have intersubjective agreement. We all see the same tree and the same car going by and stuff like that. But obviously our individual perception colors everything. But he said there's Uh kind of a more cosmic mind or Saguna Brahman it's called, which is sort of in in a way a synonym for God that gives rise to the universe. And ultimately there is no universe and ultimately we're completely one with that. And it also depends on where you want to take your stand
1: you can kind of shift I mean, from level to level part. and the whole
0: consideration changes. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right because that was the difficult part with that question because that question could be answered on, Several a, on levels. a few – yeah, exactly. Yeah. But ultimately – and so ultimately there's only awareness, to use the word consciousness, to use another word, and that's all there is.
0: Obviously there have been different schools of thought and philosophy throughout history and they all – argue these different viewpoints, which might seem contradictory or conflicting, but it's really just the blind man and the elephant situation where they're just describing different perspectives of of the same thing.
1: They are because I was uh, for many years on the progressive path. I remember I used to ask my mentor at that time when I was doing all of these degrees in this order, and I asked him, there must be a faster way because there are 33 degrees, and mostly people don't finish those degrees in one lifetime. And so I said to him, there must be a faster way. And he said, what's your hurry? You've got all of eternity. What's your hurry? And I'm like, no, I want it now. Now I want it now. And I know there must be a faster way because I can have the thought there's a faster way, so it must exist. And so I did find that, and I know that I summoned that basically that passed away the progressive path served me very well but i know when i look at everything that i learned in the progressive path that it's just the same thing just said in a different way
0: yeah there's another old indian saying which is that the goal is all along the path
1: oh you like that that.
0: oh i do yeah and what that that means to me is that one's path can be both direct and progressive I feel like in my own path, when I first learned to meditate 53 years ago, boom, directly, ah, the self. But then I've made huge progress since then, and yet still the self. So it becomes clearer and fuller and so on, but it's it's really the same thing that you can have a, a pretty clear flavor of from day one. Yes, you can. And I
1: know with the progressive path that there was like a, um, you're refining certainly in the order that I followed. You were refining the person, honing the person like a diamond until it was absolutely pure and there was nothing left on it. So that was that journey, whereas the direct path is start with the fact that you know you're the diamond. You know you're the diamond and then as things arise, they go away, they fall away. I do not know it was just right for me. The direct path, something so direct, was just right for me at the time. But I have such an appreciation for all of the traditions and how they serve people and help people. I mean, we need every one of them, we really do, to set people
0: free. Yeah, very true. For instance, all of your books each address different facets of life. And people, just using yours as a case in point, those different books would be relevant to different people at different stages of their path. And no one thing is universally relevant for everybody. I mean, it's just the way it works with anything.
1: It is. And I I remember my mentor saying to me, there are three levels of people. There are those that want a better life, this life. And he said, and the secret serves those people. And then there are those that will begin to seek they're the second level, so they will begin to seek. And then there are the third level, who are the sincerest seekers and who will not stop until they find, find the answer. He said there are less people in each of the levels, and I'm sure that's true. But what you do and hopefully what I do is to try and encourage people to go to the third level because you'll never, ever want to turn back.
0: Yeah, that pretty much mirrors those three condas that I said earlier, you know, the action one, ah, okay. the divine one, and the, yeah. the knowledge one. The thing is, though, and I'm sure you would agree with this, that each succeeding level incorporates the previous ones. It's kind of like if you're going up a building, let's say second story, third story, fourth story, it's not like you lose the view of the second floor when you get to the fourth floor. You still have that view, but you have a wider view contained within it. Oh,
1: absolutely. I agree 100%. In fact, in The Greatest Secret, my mentor again, he always referred to the mountain of consciousness and that in the valley you can't see very far. You don't know what's around the corner. There's a lot of fear in the valley. But as you begin to climb the mountain, you can see more. Your perspective changes, and the vegetation changes and the atmosphere changes. And, of course, then when you get to the top, you can see everything, but you are still the mountain of consciousness, the entire mountain. I agree 100%. Exactly the same thing.
0: There's a good metaphor or analogy with that mountain example, which is that someone standing on the top of the mountain doesn't necessarily help people who are climbing it to just shout down a description of what he sees. It doesn't do them any good, really. They need instructions that pertain to the stage of the climb that they're at.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Because they can't hear. I think it might have been Jack Canfield. I can't remember when we were filming The Secret and it was one of one of the people in The Secret, and they referred to the UPS driver that has this really big package that they need to deliver, except the mailbox just has a slit <laughs> this big, and they're trying to deliver yeah. this big package into the tiny slit of consciousness that hasn't yet opened up, and I always remember that. It's like the cake is too rich and the people can't digest it. It's too rich. So it has, yes, it most definitely is at exactly the level that the person is at, and step by step.
0: Jesus was always talking about that, you know, pearls before swine, and those who have ears to hear, Mm -hmm. let them hear. He's always constantly saying things that indicated that he can speak Mm -hmm. a truth from his level, but people aren't necessarily going to get it from their level. And Well, there's another Indian saying that when the mangoes are ripe, the branches bend down so that people can easily pick them. So a good teacher can teach on the level of development or consciousness of the student.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And they just have that ability to see right through the student or what they're struggling with and just to be able to redirect them. I mean, that's the wonder of a teacher. A lot of people have asked me, do you need a teacher? I didn't have a teacher for many, many, many years, although I had many teachers along the way, but not a teacher that I connected with personally. But I had many teachers that I followed. In fact, all of the teachers in The Greatest Secret, every one of them affected my life in one way or another, enormously, actually. But then when I did find my teacher, it just accelerates everything, you know, because they're, they're so perceptive. And as you said, they can just see through everything. And so all of the concepts that, and beliefs and everything that you hold on to and the mind getting in the way, because that was the biggest thing for me. My teacher would say to me, It's all the mind, Rhonda. Everything you're saying is mind. It's just mind. (laughs) And I'll be like, I want to tell you something that happened since I haven't seen you. And she's like, and she would just be like, it's all mind. It's all mind. (laughs) mind. In other words, it's totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter at all. So a teacher is uh, incredibly valuable, I think.
0: Yeah, I just want to say, because we've already gotten one email about it, that uh, your teacher doesn't want to be known. She wants to remain anonymous. And so please, everybody, don't send us a 100 emails saying, who's her teacher? Because <laughs> she doesn't want to say.
1: <laughs> she doesn't. She wants to remain anonymous. She doesn't consider herself a teacher. And so she wants to be low key, I think, basically in the silence, to be honest. But you have her. You have all of her in that book. All of those incredible words. And I, I get quite in Im- emotional just thinking about that I think when we were chatting I talked about when I first met her and was overcome with incredible bliss and I realized I had finally arrived home and so when you have a teacher that takes you home like that immediately it's just yeah that teacher will always mean everything to you
0: (laughs) yeah that's great Let's get back to that in a second. Let's put a pin in that, as they say, because there's another another point that I just wanted to finish wrapping up. We were talking about the progressive and direct paths, and there were a few dangling thoughts on that. One is this old Zen story where the master hands the student the brick and says, polish this brick (laughs) until it becomes a mirror, and the, the guy polishes for some days, and it doesn't get anything more like a mirror. And that was meant to sort of indicate that the progressive path of just refining, refining, refining might have no end to it. But analogies have their limitations, and you use the analogy of a diamond. And I would say that you could pick up a rough stone on the street that's all dingy looking and has dirt on it and think, well, this is just some stone, but it could be a diamond. And if it's polished and cleaned and prepared and cut properly, you have this beautiful, sparkling thing. So, you know, I would suggest that at the same time, Refinement has its place and refinement will be never ending as long as we exist. There will be continual refinement. In addition, perhaps, hopefully, to direct cognition.
1: Yes, there has to be. Continual cleansing and continual purifying until there's just nothing else there but awareness. And then I don't know that we're here.
0: (laughs) Then (laughs) when that happens, yeah, we'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I just want to say, it's not something you and I are making up. I mean, all the traditional teachers and scriptures, if you respect those, say this kind of thing and have examples of how profoundly refined one can actually become and, and how incredible that can be. So it's there's still some, always something to aspire to. There is. There is. It's
1: the less opinions and uh, all of those things that the less person that's there the happier we are. Certainly that is what I have found. It's really interesting because the person is still there, but not really in so many ways. So it's a little bit like what you said before, you know, with the building, that's there, but awareness is there. So nothing's deleted in the universe. There's no paddock of absence (laughs) up in the far corner of the universe. So just being more being that awareness and that allowing and that love and intelligence and presence is shining through the form of the person.
0: Maybe one way of putting it is that realizing that we're the ocean doesn't mean that we're no longer still a wave, or both. It's much cooler, though, to be the whole ocean and be a wave than to just be a wave. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Waves get kicked about. (laughs) They do. (laughs) Most definitely. (laughs) On the point of teachers, there's all kinds of wonderful teachers in your book, Rupert Spira and Pamela Wilson and many people I've interviewed and a few that I haven't. Those are all, to me, friends and inspiring people. There's a problem, though, in the spiritual community, which is that a lot of teachers, a lot, actually, seem to go bad in some way. They seem to go off the rails. Um, It's revealed that they're engaged in some inappropriate sexual behavior or financial shenanigans or control things where they're working students to death and and this and that. And a lot of people become disillusioned. Some kind of give up on the spiritual enterprise altogether because they feel so burned, you know, by the experience with some teacher. Mm. So do you have any thoughts about that?
1: I've never come across a teacher like that, so I'm very fortunate in that way. I'm sure it would be incredibly disheartening I do believe that we are meant to hit each lily pad that we hit. And so if you are connecting with a teacher who has gone bad, there's a lot for you to see in that and to learn in that and that more discernment or whatever. But just to keep going, just to keep going, because I'm sure even if a teacher went bad, that that student received a lot from that teacher, even if they did something. It's very interesting, that order that I was talking about. It's open for 120 years and then it closes for 120 years. And it's done that since way before Knights Templar and everything. Is that intentional? That's their pattern
0: that they intentionally do? That's intentional.
1: That's intentional. And the reason that they do it is so that no family can have this immense power of knowledge and misuse that power. And so they knew that with a certain amount of power, people are tempted. There's temptation there. And so to avoid that, they closed. 120 years open, 120 years closed. And so it's just part of life, and you just move on to somebody else.
0: I think one reason that people get burned is that they... Like you said, you went from kind of outer-directed to inner-directed. But a lot of people, when they first get into spirituality, have a very outer-directed orientation, and they invest everything in the teacher to the exclusion of their own sensibility sometimes and their own confidence and and so on. And they allow themselves sometimes to be kind of led way off the track because they doubt their own judgment and give precedence to the teacher's behavior.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. I really do. Because if we look at every single moment and circumstance, my teacher says every moment, every second, every circumstance is to take us home. Every single moment, every meeting with a person, the words that you hear, every event and circumstance is a gift to take us home. And so therefore, that teacher that we gave all of our power because I know with my mentor, he would say to me, there's only one master. If I ever said to him that something where I was bestowing upon him superior wisdom, he would say there's only one master and that master is within you. So I think you're absolutely right that if we do invest too much and we've given our power away, we're, we were on the wrong track and we need to be redirected.
0: Yeah. Another sort of healthy variation on that is sometimes teachers will give all the the glory and credit to their teacher, and they often have a picture of the teacher behind them or something. They'll say, it's not me, I'm just a spokesperson for this guy, you know, and and he's a spokesperson for the guy before him, and and so on.
1: I was thinking before when I was talking to you about my teacher, she doesn't want to, how do I phrase this, she doesn't want to be given any credit or accolades or whatsoever if I've ever gone to say something to her like just recently I remember I was recapping when I first met her and she said I let you go on for a reason for you to let all that go let it all go let that memory go with everything else so there's no possibility with her always she's reflecting everything the one being that we are back
0: to you. That's good. Yeah, actually, as you described that, I I kind of flashed on the absurdity really of making a a super duper fuss about the individuality of a teacher, because from that teacher's perspective, if they're the real deal, their individuality is pretty negligible. And and really, it's the divine, you know, that they just reside in. And, you know, we just see them as a a window into the divine, but it's it's the divine we're interested in, not the window.
1: Exactly, they're just there temporarily
0: for you to discover who
1: you are, and then uh, I don't see my teacher very much anymore because I know what I know now, and uh, other than enormous gratitude that I have, but I don't see her.
0: I'll tell you a cool story though that plays devil's advocate to the point we're just making, so. A disciple one day came upon his teacher and God incarnate, standing next to each other. And for a second, he thought, well, who should I bow to first? You know, this is God, and and it's also my teacher. And then he bowed to his teacher, and he said, I I bow to you, my teacher, who has shown me my God.
1: Mm. But they're both the one. Yeah,
0: exactly. They're the one. They're the same I'd be bound to both of them. Yeah. Right, in the, yeah. right in the middle. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk more about the greatest secret now. I was reminded of a verse in the Gita, which I, wrote, I copied down here, chapter 2, verse 29. One sees him as a wonder, another likewise speaks of him as a wonder, and as a wonder another hears of him. Yet even on seeing, speaking, and hearing, some do not understand him. And they use the word him, but they're really talking about Brahman or being or the self or whatever we want to call it. And there are all kinds of verses like that, not only in the Gita, but all kinds of books about how there's this profound reality, which is really all that exists. Or if we want to think of it as transcendental, it's it's within everything. And yet the vast majority of people are completely unaware of its existence. And isn't that odd? Isn't it? I think about it every day
1: every single day and I understand because I didn't see it for decades so I understand and yet when you see it it's so obvious you know it's always been there that consciousness has always been there for every single second without it there'd be no experience whatsoever and yet it is overlooked by so many people and I guess it's just where things are at at the moment where people are at at the
0: moment. Yeah, I mean, some say that there have been ages in the past, such as Satyuga, you know, where it was kind of the norm to know this. And now we're in a yuga where it's a rarity. So who knows about that? And when we consider what we're talking about here, actually, which is like this ocean of bliss, and then when we consider how much unhappiness there is in the world and how much suffering, it's kind of like, fish being thirsty or something. Here they are just immersed in the ocean, craving water.
1: Totally. And the unhappiness and the suffering isn't necessary. It doesn't have to occur. But if we invest everything in the world and that it's all real and we think that is the one reality, then we will continue to be buffeted around. Because as my teacher said, if every moment is to take us home, then, and I, I certainly my experience of that confirms it, then while we continue to believe in something that isn't real, then we will continue to be buffeted and there will be suffering and there will be difficulty and challenges.
0: And not only we as individuals, but the world. I mean, you know, there's a sort of a macrocosm microcosm thing where the world is getting buffeted around and Sometimes there's world wars and sometimes there's pandemics and sometimes there's economic collapse and, and so on. And ultimately, I think that none of these things are arbitrary or capricious or insignificant. There's an evolutionary impact to everything.
1: Absolutely. Just recently, what we've been going through, it's perfect in its timing. I've watched that event and the effect that it's had on people and can see that. All of it. There was an invitation there because there was great fear, you know. So there's an invitation to be free of fear and to recognise and realise the truth, to look beyond, because one of the things that everybody strives for is safety and security and to feel safe and secure. And what the last couple of years did was say, well, You may never be safe and secure because you don't know what's around the corner. And I could just see the beauty of that and that if you find out who you are, you will have total safety and security amidst the turmoil and the turbulence and not suffer. So to be at peace and to be filled with happiness in a really challenging world situation, you know you've found something
0: incredible. One thing that's happened during the pandemic, which they've been talking about a lot on the news, is what they call the Great Resignation, where a lot of people are thinking, what am I doing in this job? And and they're resigning from their jobs. And I don't know if they've all figured out what they're going to do next, but it's a it's actually a big thing. It's causing a kind of a labor crisis because people just think, I don't want to spend this much of my time doing this thing anymore. There must be something better for me.
1: Right. Which is great, isn't it? Because they're questioning. It makes it difficult for the world to keep turning in the way that it's been turning, but it isn't meant to. I think when something dramatic happens, it means that we're being directed to take a right-hand turn. We're not continuing down that path anymore. We're taking a right-hand turn, and I absolutely know that everything that is coming is for the better, Every, absolutely everything. So I think for sure that... This kind of thing will help people to wake up and, as you say, to not want to continue to resign from their jobs and yet look, too, at all the people that relocated. People left cities and they've moved states and relocated and to get out of the city. And we know the impact of nature and the peace and the silence that that has on us. One has to think that's heading in the right direction, too.
0: A lot we could talk about about this kind of thing, but we'll just keep skimming along. I've often been as fascinated with the societal implications of what the spiritual significance of, of what happens in society is, as much as I am in the sort of spirituality on the individual level. There's these major shifts and trends and transitions that the whole collective consciousness goes through. Yes, I agree. And-
1: I always fall back on the words that Robert Adams would say, and it just resolves all of it for me. Everything is unfolding exactly as it should. And I'm just like, everything's unfolding exactly as it should. Ah, ah,
0: people, I
1: carry it with me everywhere.
0: Did you ever hear that story of the Zen teacher who comes in, looks at his students and says, you're all perfect just as you are, but you could use improvement." Here's another question that came in. This one is from um, Marie in Oak Park, Illinois. Since awakening to your essential self, do you still feel the impulse to use the law of attraction to manifest things? Has the process of intending, requesting, praying for things changed in any way? That's such a good question. One of the
1: things, going back to my mentor and the order, my mentor was definitely self-realised. However, when they, and the order was a non-profit, so whenever they needed anything, he would visualise and he would visualise that they had it already and he was self-realised. So I was very fortunate to have been connected with him because I saw how... He still used the mind and visualisation to manifest things. And, of course, they would manifest really fast. So there might be a a really ancient book by Francis Bacon that they wanted to to bring back to the order, so he would visualise having it. So I do do still, um, I guess, use the law of attraction or use the mind. However, it's very fast because I'm not breeding opposing thoughts and thoughts of doubt and all of those things. So it's like a thought dropped into fertile soil and it will just manifest. So that's one thing is that it manifests really quickly. Yes, I do. So I'm not visualising for days and days or anything like that. But the second thing is I don't want the things really... (laughs) So I don't have that yearning anymore for things. I just find that even before I realised I might want or need something, it just appears. And it's like, wow, it appeared before I realised I needed or wanted that. I'd like to give Marie something because when we are so effortless and letting go of everything and not this desperate white knuckle kind of thing to try and control life, but when we let go, life delivers to us far more, far greater than we can actually ever imagine.
0: There's actually a mechanics of this explained in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. There's a word called sanyama. And it's this process where you entertain a desire, but it's not this white knuckle thing you just described where it's like an intense thing, but it's just a really subtle impulse. And then you just relax, it back into the transcendent, just let it drop like a n- drop into the ocean. And then the result comes. And if we're doing that at a really clear level, like you said, the result comes immediately.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly what it's like. You described it perfectly. That's exactly what it's like. Because when you know that you are the one and only, then everything is you. So, but one of the things that I realised is, I might just say this to Marie for visualisation, is very early on with The Secret, you know, I would visualise myself and the object in the picture. So there were two things in the picture and it worked just fine. But a faster way to visualize is to be one with that object, to be that object, to be one. There's no separation, no gap between you and the object, you are one with it. And I know for the Knights Templar created these tarot cards to contain the truth because all of the books were being burned. And so they put all of the truth in tarot cards and gave them to the gypsies and said these are fortune telling cards. And it was so that wisdom would last through the centuries for whoever would come upon it. And one of those cards has a woman pregnant, very pregnant in a field, and that had a really big impact on me, that card, when I was learning all about the symbols because that's exactly what it needs to be like when you want to manifest something, right, is to be pregnant with that desire to be totally one, and that happens in a flash. That can be like so fast, like what you were just saying, And then it just drops away and manifests
0: immediately. Yeah. There's a saying, and I actually researched it to try to figure out where it came from, but it appears that a number of cultures have this saying, but it's first deserve, then desire. And I think it's kind of what we're talking about here, where we can desire at the level where the mind is very agitated and dissipated and full of conflicts and impurities and so on, or we can desire at a very refined level where the mind is pure and settled and you know, shimmering along on the surface of the self, so to speak. And there's a big difference between you know, desiring at this level or desiring at this level in terms of the, the power and efficacy of the thought or the desire. Yeah,
1: that's perfect, really. Because the mind separates everything, so it's turning the universe into all little bitty pieces. It keeps me bitty pieces everywhere and carving up more and more and more when everything is actually one. And so when we visualise something that we, we are one with, we can manifest it just so fast because then we're not getting time involved, we're not getting space involved. When they don't exist anyway, for law of attraction, time and space don't exist. And so, yeah, you can manifest something really quickly. It's a really wonderful thing when life is giving you everything before you can even think that you might want it. It's a really, really wonderful thing. And I would just say to anybody watching or listening that it is the way to go because it's a delight.
0: It's just so beautiful. Your little bitty pieces phrase reminded me of a Gita verse. I mean, it's passed me a note twice saying I'm talking too much, but i got to tell you this verse.
1: I love all your pieces of wisdom.
0: Uh, So this verse goes, For many branched and endlessly diverse are the intellects of the irresolute, but the resolute intellect is one-pointed. You can think of it like a bicycle wheel, where some people live at the hub and all the spokes radiate out from them. Others are kind of out on the spokes, you know, all scattered.
1: All scattered exactly all over the place. I
0: used to be like that. Yeah, me too.
1: <laughs> Still am, to Maybe some day. extent.
0: Now, this theme you brought up a couple of times about having something come to you before you even realize that that's the thing you needed. I think this is a beautiful point, and it might be worth, worth us discussing it just a little bit more. Maybe I could ask you, what do you feel are the mechanics underlying that phenomenon?
1: Good question. Um, I never really thought about that. Now, when anything happens, I'm like, well, this was meant to happen. When something happens, when something comes, or I'm like, I I don't even question it because I'm I'm just like, well, this was meant to happen at this exact time, and it's divine timing, and so I don't even look to see. Like, it has to do so much with no resistance to Mm -hmm. anything, right? Right and this openness that you carry with you. So I don't think anything comes that's out of place. I think it's, it's what something that you need for the journey that is no journey. It's so interesting because with law of attraction, you use the mind. But when these things happen, this is beyond the mind. You know, these, these things come from beyond the mind. Do you have thoughts on it?
0: Yeah, and I could probably use you as a case in point, which is that, You're serving a beautiful function, propagating some nice wisdom to lots of people. So in that sense, you're serving as a sort of an agent of the divine or an instrument of the divine. And since you're doing that, you receive a lot of, we could say, support from the divine, supportive nature, if we want to call it that. And like you said earlier, you don't have a lot of superfluous, trivial desires or things that you want. You know, it's, it's pretty simple in a way. So, you're not getting showered with Mercedes Benz's right and left or something. But the things you actually do need, which help you serve your purpose, your function as an instrument of the divine, come to you because the divine wants you to successfully fulfill that function.
1: Yes, I love that actually. I really love it. And two, when you don't have any resistance, then you're just kind of surrounded with all the love and Well, you are all of the love, but the very abundant physical world that we exist in, this absolute abundance of everything. And so I think also that it's a reflection of everything that you have inside, of course. Yeah, I've never really thought about that, but I love your take on it. I'm just always so grateful. And then the days are filled with, I must call so-and-so, but then they call, or I must email but then they email, and you would think I would sit down and say, oh, okay, now I'm going to get so-and-so to call, but I don't. I just have this effortless thought, you know, this effortless thought of, oh, I must call so-and-so, and And then next thing they're texting me, they're calling me. It's just incredible the way that it works. Life is just so effortless and um, free. There's a
0: saying, nature knows best how to organise. Yeah, yeah when you think about the organizational capability that it must take to run a universe <laughs> <with> all, <laughs> from the atomic level to the galactic level and all that intelligence is just functioning so perfectly it's pretty light work to fill the desires of a person who happens to be attuned to that intelligence
1: yes I remember hearing these words be like a hollow bamboo many years ago I heard. Those were words that had a big impact on me as well. And I realized that for the last six years, that's what I've been doing, becoming that hollow bamboo. And when you are that kind of empty, just everything, (laughs) everything flies in.
0: So I have in front of me here, we have some time still, plenty of time. And also, incidentally, if, you know, if any thought pops into your head and I haven't been asking you a question about it, feel free to launch into it, even if it's a a gear shift into a different topic or something. But in terms of the greatest secret, we've touched upon the notion that it's hidden in plain sight. And I I like that phrase. Might be interesting to dwell on it a bit more because, you know, we're not talking about something that's far away or impossible to reach or anything like that. It's, as some say, it's closer than your jugular vein closer than your breath,
1: closer than everything. It's filling the room that you're in. It's filling the entire universe, and it has no boundaries. I mean, that's when you begin to look and see there are no boundaries. It's just uh, infinite. And it's this, I mean, to try and help people see this, and really it's sensing it, isn't it? It's it's really sensing it. It occupies my days every single day, to try and find ways where absolutely every single person would see it. Like I think there must be something where everybody can see this and sense it and feel it. There must be. And I want to find that way. It's here and now and the mind is taking us to the past, to the future, and it's this presence, that was another word that helped me, to this presence that I think everybody can sense and feel, the presence in life, this presence. But for me now, it's just so obvious. It's filling this room and all of us. And when I look at you, there it is. (laughs) So this really beautiful, beautiful consciousness that we are.
0: We were just discussing a verse last night that goes about the yogi sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self. Swami, he went on for about 45 minutes about that one verse.
1: And I think that just deepens and expands more and more, goes deeper and expands to be further. So just with every day, the more that we can be conscious of consciousness aware of awareness because i've certainly found for myself that the more that i'm aware of awareness the weaker the mind becomes
0: weaker in and the sense so, of less intrusive not weak right. in a in an enervating sort of way no. Yeah.
1: No, no no but just becomes weaker and so then i'm using the mind for what i need to use it for which is at a particular time i'm going to be talking you but i don't have that psychological mind that is like the torturer was the torturer for me in my life most certainly and for many people that psychological mind that causes all of the suffering in people i don't have that it can't trick me anymore it can't pull me in anymore and so i use the mind for what it was designed for my teacher says we created the mind for only one purpose, and that is to manifest what we want. That's it. We created it for that. And, of course, the mind is creative, so it, if you want to use that word, in the, creative in the dream, <laughs> and so it's always going to create what we want and what we don't want. But, yeah, ultimately, is it all a dream?
0: Well, we can get into that for a minute. <laughs> About this thing of the mind, one way I've heard it explained is that if a mind is sort of chattering along constantly with like radio static going on, a million different thoughts, then all those different thoughts are dissipating our energy. It's being dispersed among all kinds of, 99% of which are irrelevant and useless. But if the mind is sort of settled and refined, then you still have thoughts, but you just have the ones that are actually appropriate. And all that energy that was dissipated before can be channeled into those much fewer thoughts, and therefore the thoughts have a lot greater potency and efficacy.
1: That's exactly right. And people would know that by their own experience because if they got really upset over a circumstance or somebody said something to them and, and they just got really, really upset, then they will find that that upset or anger or whatever that negative emotion is, that is just food for the mind and the mind is just delivering one thought after another after another. You should have said this, you should have done that and, uh, and just continues on and on and on. And at the end of that day, you can barely crawl into bed. <laughs> You're just a total wipeout. Like, and so people would know for sure through their own experience exactly what you just said is what occurs. So, of course... When the mind is still and you're just using it for what you meant to use it for and it's not your psychiatrist and psychotherapist and commenting on every single thing that you do, you're not going to feel depleted of energy.
0: And I don't know about you, but I've met a few people whom I considered quite remarkable in terms of their level of, of evolution or consciousness or whatever. And the level of energy was astounding. Hours and hours and hours and hours on end without appearing to get tired or unhappy or grouchy or (laughs) those things.
1: And, I mean, some of them only sleep like a couple of hours a night and, you know, don't sleep very much. I mean, I still sleep the whole night. But they just have this, this unlimited amount of energy. And, as you say, you know, you can feel it when you're near them. You can surf that in <laughs> Yeah, it's like this field
0: that absorbs you or something. Yeah, yeah
1: wonderful. Yeah.
0: Absolutely wonderful. Looping back to about two minutes ago, you were saying you your whole day is all the time, like how can I make more people aware of this? I think one key yes. point in there is what we've been saying about how this reality that we're talking about is like an ocean that we're swimming in, and therefore everyone should have the confidence that, they could realize it. I think if you're able to think a thought, if you're able to listen to this interview, it's well within your capability to have this realization. It's it's not just for famous people or people who wear white robes or any such thing. It's for ordinary people.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's actually already there for every person. It's what they are already. So it's not something you have to go and find or look for, It's already present. It's already present within you. It's just that um, the mind can be so invasive and chattery that it appears to be blanketing the presence and the consciousness that is always there and underneath it. We wouldn't even know, we wouldn't be aware of the mind if it was not for awareness. We wouldn't even be aware of thoughts if it were not for awareness. I know Francis Lucille says it is the one that is hearing these words. He uses that all of the time. And so it's the one that you are. It's the one that everybody is. So it's present and it's here. Now it's who you are. It just doesn't have that story of limitation attached to it.
0: What you just said reminds me of the second verse in the Yoga Sutras. It goes, Yoga chitta Vritti Naroda, which means yoga, or union, is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And then the next verse is, Then the seer rests in the self. And um, uh-huh. I'm wondering, in, in your own case, you described how your mind has become much more quieter and less, much more quiet, less chattery and all that. That happened kind of spontaneously, or did you engage in a meditation practice or something to settle your mind?
1: I think uh, with The Secret and being really wanting to be positive for all of those years. And when I say positive, I mean to think about what I want and not what I don't want. So that, I think, really trained the mind to be positive, to be grateful, to be loving, So that was a really fantastic first step, I think, for me. And then when I went into the second step of uh, realising who I am, then it really did become a process To because the mind would rise up. So it didn't happen instantaneously for me. The mind would keep rising up and I would find that I was following the mind and an hour later I'll be like, oh no, <laughs> the line got me. Where have I been? <laughs> and then I would welcome that and release on that. So it was over some time, but it just got weaker, weaker. And the way that I could measure it was the degree of happiness that I felt and the degree of peace that I felt inside. The way that we measure is by our own experience and by our level of happiness and peace. And then what's extraordinary, because you can just marvel at it, that the things that used to bother you, you know, that that person would irritate you or, you know, you would get hot under the collar about a particular subject and all of those things, they just don't affect you anymore. You know, like, how, why did that person bother me? You know, there's nothing wrong with that person. Nothing affects you in the way that it did. And, in fact, I reached a point where I really wanted everything. I was asking For everything, I wanted to see it. I wanted everything to come up, all of the beliefs and the concepts and everything. I wanted them all to rise up so I could just, like, welcome them and dissolve them and have them collapse. So it's kind of fantastic (laughs) if an emotion does arise, like a bit of impatience or whatever. Like I have a dog and she's really old now and she's 16 occasionally there will be an accident on the floor you know it'll be on the floor and that I have noticed you know I'm like oh, and then immediately I was just like welcome that you know welcome that feeling and just not wanting to make it go away and just let it be here and it just oh my gosh so wonderful it just collapses and there's all the happiness that is just sitting there so beautifully underneath it so you know, there's still things like that that come up. That's the main one, actually. <laughs> that's the main one. <laughs> the Dog <moment>. pee?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your biggest problem. I think you're in pretty good shape.
1: I'm good at welcoming it. Then I felt this actual overwhelming love and compassion for her because she's 16 years old and wow, she's a legend. She's incredible. So. All of that sort of swept over me, so now the dog pee doesn't affect me in the way that it was before.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. There's sort of a cart and horse question in here. You know, it seems like you've undergone a huge amount of purification over all the years that you've been focusing on this stuff. Purification of the mind is, again, in traditional spiritual traditions, considered to be extremely important in order to prevent this mental turbulence that we've been talking about from continuing it's uh, the, all that turbulence is said to be symptomatic of pent-up impurities or impressions scars, and, and they call them and so it seems like if you've, you've purged a lot of that stuff just through the whole process you've done and you know i, I kind of find it fascinating because In my background, I've always practiced meditation. That's been my main path. And then I don't think about it too much during the day, but the benefit carries over. But many teachers, many quoted in The Secret and Ramana Maharshi, for instance, did advocate something that you would do throughout the day in terms of self-remembrance or the way you deal with stuff that comes up. And it seems like in your case, that has been a lot of your path and it's been very effective for you.
1: It has and really it was Lester Levinson who came up with that kind of releasing and welcoming and I think because of the secret, because I had studied the subconscious mind quite a bit, especially with my mentor, I understood how much we're creating from the subconscious mind by default and so suppressed thoughts and suppressed feelings and beliefs all stored in the subconscious mind. So it became very clear to me that with each releasing of those suppressed and repressed feelings, that I would be free, I would be freer. And I mean, Lester Levinson said he did it in three months. It was incredible what he did. So that's the main thing that I focus on. I will watch out for a belief, but really it's feelings. and when an emotion arises, if any kind of emotion that is not a pleasant emotion, then I will just allow it to be here and feel the energy, which you can feel, coming up through your chest and out, and so that I've just found that incredible, really incredible because you can measure how you're going, you know, that you're getting happier, that you're not feeling, you don't feel anger like you used to feel. My teacher says that once you've released all the anger, it's impossible to feel angry ever again. Once you've released it, you you can't feel that anymore. And certainly my experience has been that, that there are emotions now that I just can't feel. I just have the happiness. So for me, it was the fast path. And you talked about meditation. I have such admiration for all of those years of meditation. And I decided not to meditate and the reason on my path and the only reason that I chose not to meditate but I have to define this too was because I didn't think that millions of people, hundreds and hundreds of billions of people would meditate and so I thought I had to find another way of meditation. However, that said, I have spent all of these years in contemplative meditation. It's not really the case that I didn't meditate because I think that every second of every day is contemplative meditation.
0: Sure. And even just meditation where you sit down and do nothing but that for a while, for 20 minutes or an hour or whatever, that's come a long way since the 60s when I learned. You know, I mean, it was a little unusual in those days. These days you have yoga centers on every corner and a lot of people, Dan Harris of ABC News just left his job so that he could focus uh, on his meditation teaching career. You know, he has this thing called 10% Happier. And Sam Harris, who's a staunch atheist, is teaching meditation through his app. So meditation has become pretty mainstream. I don't think everybody in the world is going to do it, but it's coming into its own more and more. Oh, definitely
1: it is. And I think mindfulness people are really into that and a lot of companies are using all of yeah. those things now and
0: it's being taught in and schools really and prisons different. and yeah. halfway houses yeah. and all kinds it's, of things
1: it's wonderful because what it means is that people are understanding that that understanding more that the biggest challenge they have is actually their mind you know yeah. that is the one it's your mind I certainly used to think that it was the people, circumstances, and events in the world that were the problem, but it's our response and reaction to those things that's the problem, not those actual things in and
0: of themselves. I think it might have been Gandhi who said it's a lot easier to put leather on your feet than to pave the earth in leather. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, wear shoes (laughs) or sandals in his case, which is not to say we shouldn't try to help the world, but first things first. That's right. Again, you were saying that, you know, it's really on your mind a lot. Like, what more can I do to disseminate this knowledge more widely, you know, to help more people be aware of it? You've already got your book out. I mean, what are you thinking? What are you planning? Are you cooking up something additional that you might do? Or are you (laughs) just doing more of the same or what?
1: So I've been doing lives and, you know, podcasts like this. And what's really wonderful is, That social media lives where I do Facebook and Instagram, and what I found is we get a lot of mail from people, and they've said they've read The Greatest Secret, but then they watch when they watch the lives, they've got it.
0: By the lives you mean you have like a a webinar that people can join and
1: Facebook. I do Facebook and Instagram live for like thirty minutes and answer questions, and so was very focused on The Greatest Secret with those. And because people are asking questions, then the way that I talk about it comes through differently from the way that I've perhaps expressed it before. And so several people have said that on the lives, when they watch the lives, I just use different words and I described it in a different way and they saw it immediately. And that just makes me really happy. And so to exposed to try and do as much as I can like that there is something in the back of my mind that I'm thinking you know maybe I will write a book about understanding the mind more for people and of course understanding the mind so that you can go beyond the mind (laughs) so that you can go because that's always what I'm going to hope that people will do and so I am toying with something like that. But just to be able to answer people's questions and talk to people and if they ask a question, then just something may just come through that has not been said before. Letting go. You know, Lester would talk about, you know, to let go. And I think he used to do this thing with a pen, or I know how Hale Dwoskin does and to let go, and you're just, you know, holding a pen like that and letting go. So, for example, letting go of anger or letting go is just as simple as that, opening the hand, letting it go. But when somebody, when they have a really strong pattern of an emotion like anger and it rises up in them, it feels like it's taking them over. And so it can be really challenging to just, you know, for them to do that. And so I'm always trying to think of analogies like floating, like when you float on a swimming pool, you cannot have any tension in your body at all or you will sink. And so you just have to let go. You have to be totally, totally relaxed. And is it so interesting is that when you don't resist an emotion, it just evaporates. And it's incredible. It just evaporates.
0: I think you were quoting Carl Jung in the book, What You Resist Persists. Was that Carl Jung? Persists,
1: yeah. Uh, I could write a book on resistance (laughs) easily.
0: (laughs) Was it said in Star Trek, resistance is futile?
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, resistance is, if we wanted to just drill down, you know, there are some things that are just so simple and, and resistance, which is not accepting the way things are just letting things be the way they are. Because the thing is, if you just let things be the way they are, they change. They change. But we resist when something happens and that resistance holds that circumstance and that energy in that one place without moving. Just need to let things go.
0: People shouldn't feel like there's something wrong with them if they have a hard time doing this. I would say, because there's a whole neurophysiological component. And, you know, we've spent a lifetime creating deep impressions that actually have a, you know, a a neurophysiological basis. And you're not going to just snap your fingers and have all those impressions disappear overnight. They kind of have to be worked out. And there's this whole science of neuroplasticity that the brain can change. But, you know, it doesn't change in a minute. It can take time for the neurophysiology Uh to rearrange itself and new neuronal connections to be established and and all this stuff. There's a great saying, I think it's shanai, shanai, and it means slowly, slowly. Sri Ramakrishna Uh used to say this, and I think Vivekananda. They didn't mean just be lazy and take all the time in the world with this spiritual business, but they also said, don't bust a gut, I mean, it has to happen in its proper time and you just have to tune into that flow and be sensitive to it and not be lazy but not struggle and strain either find the sweet spot
1: yes i recall when i first discovered the secret and then our thoughts create and i would sit down and decide i'm gonna have no i'm gonna have no thought have no thought yeah, good luck and i'm just gonna look at the gap between the thought and <laughs> I would just be like, no thought. And then I'd be like, no thought. <laughs> like there was no, It was just such firing at me. And so that's how I started. That was the place I started from where there was zero gap. You know, they were just coming one after the other, you know, little bit by little bit, as you say. And then all of a sudden you find that things are a little quieter and it's worth every step. It's worth every step whatever process somebody finds, whether it's meditation or whether it's releasing, to have the mind be quiet because only in an extreme event do we know how we're going in a dramatic event because we can think, oh, no, I'm doing really well, yeah, I'm great, but then when something goes wrong, then that's when the mind jumps on that energy and all the drama and then you get to see exactly where you're at and We all have the same mind, thoughts to overcome. And it's not really overcome. It's just not to believe them. It's just not to give them all the attention. Because when you stop believing them, then all of the energy, the mind just doesn't have that strength anymore. But it's one step at a time, as you say. Some people are fortunate. It just all drops in a moment. And they're free. That's rare. It wasn't I mean, case. usually
0: it doesn't work that way, but right. sometimes it does. No. Oh, yeah.
1: And you know what? I wouldn't not I wouldn't change anything. I love the journey. Yeah. I wouldn't change a thing. Love it.
0: So many interesting threads to this conversation. Well, I guess the, the last comment you made triggers the thought that um everyone really does have their own journey. So people shouldn't compare themselves to me or to you or to Rupert Spira or to anybody. Envy is not a useful sentiment in this game, and one shouldn't compare oneself to other's level of development or anything like that. It's just a waste of time. You know the old saying, seek and ye shall find. I really think that is true, and I've seen so many examples of it where when the desire gets really sincere and strong, things come. The opportunities just present themselves. Okay, you're ready. Here you go. Here's something. Yeah.
1: Well, that's true. My mentor would say he was not about that progressive path, was not about killing out desire. Their particular teachings that was not about taking out desire because being a sincere seeker was everything in terms of their perspective that you would find your way to self-realisation and enlightenment. If your heart was on fire and you wanted the truth and you wanted freedom more than anything then you would absolutely bring it to you. And so, um, well, I think Anthony DeMello said the Buddha didn't mean to take out desire. He meant to take out attachment. Yes, good one. And that just lit up the room for me. I was like, of course, of course, the attachment to desire. There wasn't anything wrong with desire in its in and of itself. It was the attachment. That was the problem.
0: I don't think anybody can live without desire. I mean, even the greatest sage <laughs> who ever walked the earth at some point is going to feel, I'm hungry, I want a burrito or something. <laughs> There's going to be a desire.
1: And it does play, as you said, it plays a really big part. Like the desire for me on the journey was massive. to The desire for truth and the, the desire to be free of suffering was enormous, absolutely enormous. So that carried me and held me in really good stand.
0: I think one thing that happens is that one's desires get transformed over the years from I, me, mine, Mm. to universal, (laughs) you look at the great sages and saints and they were thinking, what more can I do for the world? How can I eliminate suffering? How can I help these people? You know, that kind of stuff.
1: That's exactly it, because giving is our true nature. And so it's just, all you want to do is give and help as many, many people as want to be helped.
0: Cup is full, it runneth over.
1: Yes, (laughs) yes, it does, certainly.
0: Okay, attachment. A couple of themes there, attachment and happiness. I guess when we're thinking about desires, the question arises, well, why do we have them? And I think there's an underlying reason, which is that ultimately... We want to be happy, and desires are kind of like impulses of that fundamental impulse or fundamental quality of all of life, I would say, not just human nature, but all of life. Let me give you a quick example, and then you can riff on it. So let's say we have this deep desire to be happy, and ordinarily our attention is directed outwards, and we think, this will make me happy, or this will make me happy, or whatever. And inevitably it may for a brief period, but then it doesn't. It's like, okay, now I need this. But I would say all of those things are just kind of a reflection. They're just little mirrors that reflect a tiny portion of the unlimited happiness that exists deep within us. And once we turn things around and align ourselves or begin to rest in that field of unlimited happiness, then our whole orientation changes and we can't easily get attached anymore because our happiness is not invested in things and so if things come it doesn't significantly increase our happiness and if things go it doesn't significantly decrease them it's like a millionaire you know who can win or lose thousands no big deal but someone who only has 10 bucks in his pocket winning or losing a dollar is is a big deal he gets attached
1: yes and certainly I live my life with that happiness, like the desire and to get objects and then feel some happiness and then it would just dissipate and it always fleeting and always temporary. And it's really funny that it's so fleeting and yet we continue to do it.
0: because yeah, what else do you we know?
1: know? Right. It's like however long, even if you're only in your early 20s, you would know. You would know that whatever you want, it's brief. Even the big thing that you want, the happiness is still really brief, and then it's gone again, and then you look into the <laughs> next thing and the next thing and you can live your whole life like that. And you never it's never gonna it's just gonna slip through your fingers. It's just like it'll just disappear just like that. And then when you find the qualities within you, like love, for example, when we really love everything and everyone no matter what, the happiness that is there within us is absolutely incredible and beautiful and doesn't move. But it feels like a different happiness, doesn't it? Because it's like the depth of it, It's like a blissful happiness, whereas the fleeting happiness, it doesn't feel nearly as deep. But I think of Francis Lucille who says there's only one happiness. There's only one and it's who you are. And so when we those things and we feel briefly happy we're getting a um, mm. tiny glimpse of who we are and then it goes away because the mind comes in and is wanting other things and wanting to change this and change that but to find lasting happiness which is what I talk about in the scene you could there's only one place you're ever going to find lasting happiness and that is to know who you are and to be who you are and then you have it then you've got it And then life is just incredible. It's a wonderful thing. And you're right that when you have that happiness, no, attachment is gone. It's when you find who you are, that attachment isn't there anymore because you are way more accepting and allowing of life and not so determined that this should happen that way or this way. Or when you have the happiness, what else do you need? Because everything that we want and we don't want is because we think we'll be happier for the having of it or the not having of it. So it's what drives us, and yet that's who we are. It's like a big joke, isn't it? Like we're all searching for happiness, but it's who we are already.
0: Yeah, just kind of looking in the wrong place. It's like that Rumi story where the guy's looking for his house keys or something under the streetlight, and someone comes to help him, and they look for a while, and they look for a while, and the guy said, well, where did you... What do you think you lost him? He said, well, I'm down the street there, you know. Uh, he said, well, why aren't we looking there? Because the light's no good down there. <laughs> you know? So people are looking in the wrong place. Just, again, there's a, a lot of things are coming up that I've just been reading. Like last night there was this verse uh, in the Gita that we were studying that, that contact with Brahman is infinite joy. And Brahman meaning the mm-hmm. self or totality. And that's what you are. And it's infinite joy. And it's not just contact like dip your toe in. it's You become that. You know yourself as that. Yeah,
1: absolutely beautiful. And then it's a life that's worth living every single second. And from my perspective, that's why we're here. We're here to discover that. And that's our, as my teacher says, that's our secret intention.
0: That may be the reason the whole universe is here. I've heard teachers say, one teacher in particular, that the purpose of creation is the expansion of happiness. Mm -hmm. And we Um, are the creator in our essential nature. And so if that's the creator's ultimate purpose, then that's our ultimate purpose because we're that.
1: Yeah, exactly. We are that. And it's teeming with happiness. Like you can feel that, can't you? You you know, the the universe is teeming with happiness. Yes, yes. When you tune into that and just feel that, you can feel all of yourself and the happiness of yourself all around you and all through you.
0: And we may sound like a couple of bliss ninnies here, but this is real, you know? (laughs) It's not a mood. It's true. (laughs) That was an old phrase from the TM movement, bliss ninnies. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just quickly read the chapter titles from The Greatest Secret, and if there's anything that jumps out at you that you feel we haven't covered that we should just touch upon, we'll do. Otherwise, this will serve as a... A summary of what's in the book. Just interrupt me if you want to comment, but hidden in plain sight, the greatest secret revealed, the reveal continued, you're dreaming, it's time to wake up. Freedom from the mind, understanding the power of feelings, the end of negative feelings, no more suffering, dissolving limited beliefs, everlasting happiness, the world, all is well, and the end. There is no end. Have we pretty much covered I mean, all that?
1: Covered so yeah, we've covered so much. Of uh, I love the last chapter in the book, The End, There Is No End, and The World All Is Well. And, I, and thinking about this book, honestly, I didn't ever know whether I would be able to write this book. But then there was just this overwhelming push within me to write it, and I could always feel that I wanted, like, the revelation i wanted people to experience the revelation the way that i experienced the revelation this is life-changing and then to get down to all the practical things of the way to purify and become happier and freer and then at the end of the book to really go out with a you know really riveting incredible news (laughs) more incredible news and so the everlasting happiness and the world all is well and the end there is no end is just to me is just like so beautiful in the last chapter which talks about all of the teachers contributing and talking about that there is no death. The words are so, so beautiful in that chapter and I really teary like this book would not be what it is if it were not for all of these incredible beings who contributed their amazing wisdom and love
0: and if people listen to the hit. audiobook as I did, um, you hear them in their own voices, so you know various all these people, Rupert and Pamela and Francis and all these people it 's nice
1: and it was really fantastic because I asked them if they would do if they were just all yes, almost mm-hmm. every one of them said yes, a couple didn 't, but mostly they all said yes, and they 're really wonderful to do that. It makes such a difference when you have that energy of those teachers uh, speaking. All of the teachers that are featured in The Greatest Secret, every single one of those teachers has been a teacher that I have spent some time following their teachings. I followed them for three months or three years, but every one of the teachers in the book impacted my journey and helped me awaken and realise the truth. So... That's the body in your journey, from the secret to the greatest secret, all of those teachers.
0: Some people say, well, you should just focus on one teacher or teaching, just dig one well, don't try to dig 10 wells at the same time. But maybe another way of looking at it is maybe you could use 10 different tools to dig one well. Each tool has its own function.
1: Yes, if you become really tapped in and feel where life is taking you to, then you'll be in really safe hands because you will land at one teacher and then you may just have only been following that teacher for a few weeks and then there's another teacher and so then you begin to follow them. I was never confused. I always just stayed with a teacher. I understood the way they presented the truth and I stayed with them for quite a while very often and then would look at another teacher. Another teacher would just appear And so they follow their teachings, and there is no right or wrong way about any of it, which tradition or how many teachers or which teacher or which path or that that path was a dead end, and everything is unfolding as it's meant to and as it should, and everybody is going to get there. (laughs) Like everybody's going to get there, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Sooner or later. <laughs> and what you just said so, about all those teachers, it doesn't mean you, that you were a dilettante, you know, just superficially dabbling from one teacher to the next, because obviously you've been going very deep. But Mirabai Starr gave a nice talk at the SAND conference one year called Bees in the Garden. You might have even been there that year, but it was about how, how bees go from flower to flower. And that really works for the bee. They don't just stay on one flower the whole time. And it might be perfectly appropriate for somebody to be completely the one teacher for decades, might be appropriate for other people to be like the being, go along.
1: Absolutely, and I add, I guess a few teachers, if you look at them, but at the list of all of those teachers, but then I followed their teachings for quite a while, I have to say, for the mm-hmm. majority of them, years in many cases. But I felt that I kind of knew that I had received what I needed to from that teacher, yeah. and I got so yeah. much from every teacher. I got so much and so many aha moments and eyes open and consciousness expanding. So I would just say to anybody, we're so blessed now because there's YouTube and there's podcasts and it's a smorgasbord for people. So there's no no excuse, right? Yeah. To stay asleep.
0: For all of its shortcomings, I think the internet has provided a means for global enlightenment that would be... It would be hard to achieve that global enlightenment without a communication medium like this.
1: I agree because I, I watched. Uh, I mean, Muji is in the greatest secret, and he does so many talks. Um, he is prolific, and so I was able to watch so many of his talks. Actually, all of the teachers that I watched on YouTube and subscribed to many of them as well, and listen. Yeah, we'll just listen one after the other after the other. <laughs> Great. All I wanted to do was be with this one thing yeah. and let the world pass by.
0: Well, I think it's paid off for you. Oh, wait a minute. There's one more question that came in. This is from Emile Picard in Portland, Oregon. I'm wondering if Ms. Byrne was also compelled to change her diet as a result of her purification process, such as eating more healthily, plant-based, that kind of thing.
1: I probably did, yes. I think so. And really pure and organic and uh, all of that, yeah, makes a really big difference, I think. But again, earlier in my life, like I would have a glass of champagne for celebrations and I just watched that fall away. It just fell away. It wasn't anything I planned, but I just wasn't interested anymore. And so that happened with a lot of things. It just naturally (laughs) happened. It wasn't anything that was forced or it just gradually occurred so again i think if people trust in what is appealing to them and not appealing to them rather than forcing anything i think that's the best path to take the effortless path as much as possible It's mm, good
0: in every aspect of our life row 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 your boat gently down the stream
1: yeah <laughs>
0: merrily 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 well, that, merrily life is but a dream
1: that, that life rode the boat right. and just sit that's down. it
0: the stream is doing most of the work Yeah, Okay, you mentioned you have these live things on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. Make sure I have the links to those so I can send people to them and they can join in. You ought to have some guest people in there with you once in a while, like some of the people who are in The Greatest Secret could get in there. I think my team are
1: putting their thumb (laughs) up behind the scenes here because that is – definitely what they want for next year i'm sure
0: they'd all be happy to do it i can suggest some others to you also that aren't in the book okay so um thanks so much i've really enjoyed this time with you a lot of fun very much for
1: having thank you so much for for having me i really
0: appreciate it very much yeah and i appreciate you coming on the show it's been really a lot of fun So let me just say that next week I'll be interviewing a fellow named Babaji Bob Kindler, who's a Vedanta teacher based in Hawaii. And the following week I'll be interviewing my old friend Phil Goldberg, who has written the official biography of Yogananda on the, I think it was the 75th anniversary of the release of Autobiography of a Yogi. So we'll be talking about Yogananda and I'm sure other things. Anyway, stay tuned. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and thanks again to Rhonda, and we'll see you for the next one.